Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Welcome back to Fighting on Film, everybody. Happy New Year. Uh, we want to kick off 2021 with a bang. So I'm delighted to welcome today's special guest, historian Peter Caddick-Adams. Uh, he's joining us as we look back at that 1970s juggernaut that is Kelly's Heroes. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. It's so good to be here and uh, to yeah, push off all those winter blues with um, what I believe to be the greatest war film ever. Um, and I think you invited me on because I made an outrageous comment on Twitter, which is that this is the most fantastic war film. Uh, and I'm often asked as a military historian, a professional historian, which is the best war film ever. And my comment, which I think got your response and invitation for me to come on here, was, well, you can never get a truly objective war film True. that's historically accurate. Um, 
So I've gone for something that's historically as inaccurate as it's possible to be, which is Kenny's Heroes, which gets me out of that sort of quandary um, and gives a whole load of entertainment as well. Uh, and I can't be flayed for pinning myself to something that's historically wrong because it never happened in the first place. But you, but there's so many other other films of that ilk that you could pick. You know, there's oh god, there's Guns of Navarone, um, uh, Escape Where with Eagles the Dare. Where Eagles Dare, yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's so many others. So, so, what made you pick Kelly's Heroes? Well, I guess it's part partly to do with um, I was about ten when it came out, so um, the sort of films you see or the books you read in your early teens are the ones that probably make the biggest impact. So I grew up in that sort of generation of Sven Hassel um, and, uh, well, Kelly's Heroes. But, I mean, 1970, um, uh, and that was a year for a good haul of war films that you you wouldn't yeah. get today because there were so many of them. Um, that also saw Patton, Tora, Tora, yeah. Tora, whatever we think of that. MASH, of course, which, yeah. you know, spawned the whole TV series. Yeah. Uh, and Catch-22. Uh, and cinema audiences were absolutely huge and... The studios were battling with one another, um, and, and so you would have that many blockbusters and a lot more besides coming out um, and, and attracting people into the, the cinemas as much as possible. Well, exactly, uh, yeah. Probably that was the last haul of war movies, because we then, if you remember, went into that awful era uh, in the 1970s of disaster movies, one after another. So just coming off something you said there, Peter, about it being an influential film for you as a, as a, a young man, I think my earliest recollection of Kelly's Heroes is actually having um, the VHS, the video, um, and playing it every weekend, I think. I think I had that and, oh, God, what was the other one? Great Escape. Might have been Das Boot, I think. But, yeah, I, I remember having the, the, um, like the VHS for Christmas one year. It, it was it was in like a box set type deal. Oh, okay. My, yeah. my one was just like standalone. I think I picked up a boot fair. Um, and I was, my dad was like, oh, you're going to love this film. He <laughs> stuck it on. I mean, most of these movies we talk about, I watched with your dad, but yeah. you know, like, he was like, it's amazing. And it's one of those movies I, you just keep coming back to because it's, it's so watchable. It's so fun. It, it, it's completely unlike movies at that time. that it, it doesn't take yourself too seriously. You know, Patton's very straight-laced film, you know. But Kelly's Heroes is just it's you're so unique. It's very well-paced as well. I think the point about Kelly's Heroes when it comes out is, as you've already alluded to, it doesn't take itself seriously. Um, it's actually an anti-war movie, um, and that's how the script first appeared. Uh, and it's very closely related to MASH, um, which, of course, also uh, also starred Donald Sutherland and had been made yeah. just before. And, of course, you know, this, this is the era of Vietnam. Uh, America had already sent tens of thousands of young men to Vietnam, an unpopular war with conscription, 35,000, uh, nearly 35,000 Americans have been killed in Vietnam by the time Kelly's Heroes comes out. Um, and what you've got unashamedly, um, as you have in Mashabit, is a, a setting of a different conflict, but making a political and social comment about the war that was going on when people um, actually mm. saw the film, which is Vietnam. Yeah. Um, so you could make a protest without it being overt or political. Uh, and of course, MASH is set in Korea. Um, 
Kelly's here is set in the Second World War, but they're making the same point uh, about being anti-military. It's more veiled in Kelly's heroes because the script underwent huge uh, revolutions, really. Uh, and Clint Eastwood at the end said he was not happy with the film as it came out because it didn't match in any way the script that really attracted him and got him to sign up for the movie. Written by uh, Troy Kennedy Martin, who also wrote uh, The Italian Job, I believe. And Zed Cars. This is the key. Troy Kennedy Martin is the man who gets the whole project off the ground and mm. he had just written The Italian Job, which had come out the year before. Um, and in a lot of ways, you've got a very similar concept for a, a script a heist, uh, of a yeah. heist mm. uh, taking lots of uh, gold. In a lot of ways, you've got a, a very similar idea for the script, uh, robbing a bank uh, in an unexpected way uh, and waltzing off into the sunset. Stealing from someone who, you know, can be stolen from. So you have the yeah. mob in one and the Nazis in another. So, you know, they're acceptable Robin Hood-esque sort of almost um, institutions to be stealing from. I mean, as Keller's hero says, it's the perfect crime because yes. you're going behind the German lines to steal gold. Um, and we all know the Germans were great robbers, uh, the Nazi Reich was. So you're taking something from them that wasn't theirs in the first place. You're removing it from behind German lines and then you're just disappearing. So um, A, they can't complain. And B, you're intending to disappear into the sunset uh, with something that nobody knows anything about. And, you know, it, it, it's got all the elements, really, of a, a wonderful fantasy. And that's what sells it. It doesn't have to be too serious. Um, and the original script had no deaths in it. Um, and, and of course, we get a few. We get three of them killed in a minefield. That was never part of the original caper. Just like no one gets hurt in the Italian job, but it's written by a Brit. Troy Kennedy Martin's a Brit. He's born in Scotland, grows up there, and he's best known for Z cars. Yeah. Now how, yeah. how on earth a brain comes up with Z cars? And he wrote the Sweeney uh, along with his brother. How you go from those to the Italian job? I, you, you can sort of get because you've got wonderful people like. Michael Caine and Noel Coward, um, but that, to then go to uh, in such an American movie like Kelly's Heroes is, well, sheer genius. And there you go. That's the that's sort of production in a nutshell, really. Um, I think I still think it's amazing that, that, that it's, it comes from a British writer. I think we'll, if we go into the, the cast a little bit now, Clint Eastwood, uh, he's your, your top build star at the time. You know, he's coming off Rawhide. Um, he obviously as well, uh, Fistful of Dollars, um, massive, like massive spaghetti westerns uh, star. You know, he, he's your main man. He sells the movie. But then you've got this, oh, it's such a rich tapestry of, of, a, of a supporting cast. Um, Don Rickles, who plays Crap Game, their quartermaster. Uh, Telly Savalas, who uh, from, the, from Battle of the Bulge, He's in it. He plays Big Joe, the uh, sergeant. Uh, Donald Sutherland is oddball, you know, everyone's favourite crazy tank commander. Carl Otto Albert, Alberti, who plays uh, the only German character of any note in the film, uh, the, the tiger commander right at the end. So it's a real um, smorgasbord of big stars from that time. I mean, Carl Otto Alberti um, doesn't have a name in the film. He's no. the German tank commander. He's never... <laughs> yeah, and, and, in terms of characters, they they are. It's funny that they they were originally written as much much deeper characters, and they come across in the film um, as uh, 
uh, perhaps is not as deep uh, and more cardboard than, than you might have thought. Uh, but they've all come from a, a similar sort of role. So Clint Eastwood has come with uh, Brian Hutton, the director, uh, from Where Eagles Dare, which they both yeah. played uh, and had come out a couple of years beforehand. Donald Sutherland uh, and Telly Savalas have been in The Dirty Dozen uh, together, uh, which had come out in 1967, so uh, three years before. Um, uh, and Carlotto Alberti is is the archetypal German, sort of big fleshy lips and sort of blonde hair. And he's really been in every sort of war movie all the way through the 1960s. His first German was he captured uh, Richard Attenborough in The Great Escape. Of course, but he was yeah. there in the Battle of the Bulge. He was also in Devil's Brigade. Um, uh, he's in Battle of Britain, which had come out the, the, the year before. Um, in is Paris Burning is another one he he'd been in. So he's he's the absolute you know go to stereotypical German, and that's exactly what they need here. Some of these characters are really well known. So Don Rickles then was a really really big name, no longer with us, uh, and very big uh, U.S. Perhaps comedian, not so well remembered. Uh, and the same with Carol O'Connor, who, who plays himself as the general chomping yeah. his cigar. So all of these characters at the time um, were uh, known quantities. And of course, we, you know, we've got this wonderful script. Uh, and then we've got the director who's already produced the, the biggest blockbuster for MGM Studios, which is where Eagles Dare. Yeah. And I think what's yeah. happening here is MGM are trying to repeat the success of where Eagles Dare with a different cast, a far, far more American cast. Uh, and of course, what you've got in Where Eagles Dare is pyrotechnics aplenty. You've got, you know, no nobody runs out of ammunition famously. There's <laughs> endless explosions, Germans falling off towers and downstairs. Uh, and you've got that writ large and careless heroes. And it, it, it's a sort of rerun using the same formula to try and repeat the success. It has that comedic element as well, though, doesn't it? It sort of replaces the the more grandiose uh, and perhaps seriousness of, of War Eagles Dare with a little bit more humour. Mm. And I think that comes a lot from the cast, obviously from, from what Peter was saying, that they all knew each other in one form or another. So they'd all either been with each other on screen or possibly knew each other anyway. Mm. Uh, add to that a good script and you have, you know, and a very good like cavalcade of supporting uh, character actors. You know, you've got Harry Dean Stanton in the squad. And, and Alien, and, yeah, Brett. Yeah, and various <laughs> other other really good character actors, you know, um, Jeff Morris as Cowboy and um, uh, Stuart Margolin as uh, Lil Joe. You know, they have the, you know, there's all these good sort of like quirky character actors that deliver really solid performances, basically just from being either present or with one or two mm. short lines. And you know, it gives that gives that much broader ensemble feel than you would have, you know, the, the core cast. The the banter between everybody is so sort of it rings true it, you feel like they've been a, a squad for a while um it's mm -hmm. kind of like battleground that we talked about a few weeks ago um the the dialogue in that is quite accurate to a in the sense of that they feel like friends um they feel like they know each other and i think that it, it really comes across in kelly's hero sort of wisecracking you can feel like actually oh okay big joe and kelly are friends you know crap game and, and oddball do know each other you know it's sort of that really to me it always really helps a movie when that when you can yeah. see that on screen and it really comes through in this one. I mean, it, again, it's the genius of Troy Kennedy Martin. And I think, you know, perhaps that's something to do with the fact that all his life, his scripts, apart from the Italian job, are about policemen. In other words, groups of people in the uniform services putting their lives on the line. So you've got something not dissimilar going on here. Um, 
And I think, you know, there's a great maturity in the Kenny's Hero script. Now, what's interesting is it, it was originally about 20 minutes longer uh, and MGM cut it back. Clint Eastwood sort of was upset because it robbed some of the film of its depth mm. and its depth of characters. Um, and that's why he agreed to do it, because he, you know, he was rushed off his feet doing cowboy movies left, right and centre. Um, and uh, at the end, he sort of said, you know, had I had I seen, had I known the movie that was going to be released, I wouldn't have signed up to do it. But it was Troy Kennedy Martin's script that really sold me. But at the other end of the scale, you've got Oddball, uh, Donald Sutherland. This is only his third film role um, and absolutely nails it. Now, but again, it, it was almost as though the part was written for him because uh, it's essentially the same character he's played in MASH and before that, the same character he played uh, in The Dirty Dozen just sort of three years earlier. Um, and he's always said he absolutely loved the script. He didn't have to ad lib at all. And of course that just launched him onto, you know, the star he's always been ever since. Mm. There's so much that's complete about it. You've got a great, great uh, director who, who trusts the cast. The cast all interact extraordinarily well with one another. Um, and there's another little sort of snippet. You mentioned uh, Jeff Morris as, as private cowboy. Yeah. Um, now he he pops up in my other most favourite is ever 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 movie, uh, which is not a military movie, which is of course the Blues Brothers, uh, and he's fantastic Bob's country bunker, um, <laughs> uh, and of course that's directed by John Landis, who is one of the set directors, one of the assistant directors, on Kenny's Heroes, and that's really where John Landis cuts his teeth. And I love that sort of synergy because to me it's ticking all the boxes of all my favourite movies. Uh, and you could see the progression from one to another. And, of course, John Landis later produces An American Werewolf in London, mm. completely wacky, sort of surreal, gothic horror film. But the idea comes when he's driving through Croatia, and we'll come on to that in a second, where, where the whole thing was filmed. Uh, and he sees a guy being buried, covered with garlic and all sorts of things. Uh, and this guy is actually meant to be some kind of vampire uh, werewolf. He's buried with all of the crosses and everything, standing upright in a hole in the ground. Uh, and he says to his driver, what's going on here? And he's told, well, you know, people actually believe here in the evil eye and all the rest of it. And that's where the whole, you know, his John Landis's brain starts ticking and, and eventually ends up with a werewolf in in, in London. So as with so many things, you know, this, this film is the, the culmination of some, the beginning of others, and, and is, a, is not just a brilliant concept in its own right, but is actually a really important foot, footnote in filmography in the, the, the latter half of the 20th century. Uh, the deeper you dig, the more you find. Very true. Very true. Yeah. I think that's a good point to uh, jump off and, and perhaps give a brief overview of the plot. Yeah, I've got a, uh, I've dug up from the archives uh, a Daily Mirror review uh, from the 17th of September 1970. And uh, I think the, the, the first few paragraphs of the review really pins down the, uh, the plot. So I'll, I'll read it out. Uh, who's never dreamed of pulling off a perfect crime? Clint Eastwood and a bunch of tough soldier buddies actually carry out the perfect crime in Kelly's Heroes. All one can do is to stand back and gate with envy at their luck and sheer brazen audacity. Their objective is to raid a bank behind enemy lines, which is stuffed with gold bars. And that's that's your plot. Um, Kelly Kelly has this mad idea that there's some Nazi gold deep behind enemy lines, um, and he's going to go and go and take it. And he and he assembles this ragtag bunch of troops to go and do it. Now it's so simple. 
Um, and that's what makes it so perfect. And what's really interesting is this didn't do so well at the box office when it came out first. It's become a cult and we love it to bits now. Um, but it didn't quite make um, the dollars it was expected to when it first came out. And that was one of the accusations made against it. The plot is too flimsy. It doesn't go anywhere. Um, how on earth can you keep a movie going for as long as you can with such a simple plot? Um, mm. And there's, uh, you know, and if you don't like pyrotechnics and Germans falling off tanks and all the rest of it, um, then uh, it's pretty tedious. So some of the some of the highbrow uh, critics at the time really didn't get on with it. Um, and of course, what's happened is it's gathered this momentum, particularly because of uh, uh, the you know the excellent one-liners that crop up all the way through the movie, and we've come to love it. And of course, it, it, in slow time, it's been a slow-burning fuse for MGM and its successors, and and it's been extraordinarily successful. Mm. Um, but actually, the plot was was uh, was the focus of some of the critics' ire at the time. But um, good question. Where where's the idea come from? And I'm often asked, is is there any basis in fact in this at all? I've heard something or another that they it could be based on something, but I'm not too sure. Matt, do you do you know anything about? Is it based in? Yeah, truth it, or? it's it's reputedly based on uh, a supposed uh, liberation of uh, some uh, gold reserves in Bavaria at the end of the war that involved an American unit and some uh, local. German civilians, but there's there's a whole sort of cloak and dagger uh, element around it where it's sort of been buried and no one's too sure what's true and what isn't. And I think there was a there was a sort of U.S. government investigation into it at one point into how much of how much of it's true, truly based on that. Of course, the film takes place in um, northeastern uh, uh, France because yep. it's it's the Thirty uh, fifth divisions push towards Nancy's in, in the film. I mean, Peter will know far better than I uh, where the thirty fifth division and the first SS Panzer division were in in um, late nineteen forty four. In a bunch of sixth armored corps lads. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, yeah, it's this. There is supposed to be some sort of um, truth behind it, but how um, Troy uh, Kennedy Martin heard about that, I don't know. So maybe it's something that people have sort of like linked to it later on because the story's so. I mean, I've I've, I've got a couple of hunches. I mean, there is a thirty fifth division. Um, it was fighting in and around Nancy in the uh, the, the summer of nineteen forty four. So that's that's all right. The sixth armored division eventually uh, ends up in Europe. So Oddball could indeed uh, have been part of them. Um, uh, so, yes, there's a lot of German uh, gold salted away at the end of the Second World War with the assistance of unnamed uh, American officials and uh, uh, American servicemen uh, and German bank officials. Um, and this is, you know, millions and millions of dollars in gold bars and coin um, that is hidden in mines and other places. Uh, and although huge, huge amounts are uncovered by Patton's Third Army um, in various salt mines in Bavaria and Austria, places mm. like Merkers, uh, uncovered in February, uh, March, April, March, April, 1945, um, not all of it is, is ever accounted for. There's a series of books which come out in the 1970s called Inevitably Nazi Gold, uh, which, which points you to the way 
a huge amount of America, of German Nazi gold was salted away and probably ends up in American hands back in the United States. Uh, and the books with, selling, with titles like that are still in print today. Um, you know, that, that's a bit nefarious, but there is some evidence that MGM wrote to various people asking for further details about, about this. Um, there's a far more logical uh, explanation, and, and, and it's one that a lot of people miss. Um, and that is round about the time the film was coming out or the script was being written, uh, another book had come out um, called The Raid. Uh, and there are th three or four books about this now. And essentially, in March 1945, uh, George S. Patton, the uh, very well-known Third Army commander, had discovered that his son-in-law, Lieutenant Colonel John Walters, was a prisoner of war in a German POW camp 50 miles behind the lines. And he organizes a task force of half-tracks, jeeps, trucks, and tanks to drive through, rescue his son and other senior officers in this jail and bring them back to safety. Um, and it happens over three days. It's called Task Force Baum under the, the captain who leads it. Um, and the whole thing is a ghastly failure uh, and only about 15 men out of 300 who set off ever reach American lines uh, and the rest are sort of uh, captured rather than killed uh, and eventually rescued. But that sounds like it'd make a great film. Is about own. going behind German lines with, with your, you know, bunch of, of uh, armored soldiers on a much larger scale seems to me to be the Hamelberg raid rather than, um, you know, uh, the, the sort of rather slower fuse, more um, questionable story of, of Nazi gold being salted away. And perhaps it's a fusion of the two. Um, but I think that's where it, it, the ideas come from. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I like about the film. Like none of none of what actually happens. It's a it's a World War II fantasy film, um, but it's none of what happens in the film is completely implausible or impossible. Yeah. You know, like with later films like Escape to Athena, it's 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 kind of ludicrous what's going on, and and you know other films of that kind of ilk. Um, but with with Kelly's heroes, like it's all fairly believable. A hand grenade does what a hand grenade should do, and you, you know that kind of thing. I think that's why it stands the test of time because. You know, you can believe that, oh, okay, there's a bank somewhere behind enemy lines. These guys get basically get an armoured column effectively and force their way towards the, the, the town that the bank's in. I think, well, yeah, they could do that. They could pull that off, you know. If if the Germans at this point don't know where, where the front lines are and, and where the Americans are, then then that they could slip relatively safely through and and, and, and capture the gold. I mean, it, it never at any point to me seems sort of, oh, really? That never happened sort of thing it actually is okay yeah. yeah go on kelly you know keep going son so so we're on the edge of plausibility which is what you know yes. makes it so mm. attractive and i think the other thing that that you know certainly attracted me all my sort of military friends uh historian friends was the fact that it looked realistic and this is at a time when all the war movers are using the wrong tanks and the uniforms are awful and the sets are all wrong. And you, you've already discussed Battle of the Bulge filmed in Spain in the middle of summer when it should have been Belgium in the middle of winter. And yet you, you look at Kelly's Heroes and it looks exactly like, you know, a bit of France would have looked like that yeah. summer of 1944. Um, you've got realistic Sherman tanks. You've got the right kind of jeeps and trucks and all the rest of it. Um, uh, the, the GIs are dressed exactly as they should do with the right kind of weapons. Um, the Germans likewise, and there's loads of, you know, Kubelwagens and half-tracks knocking yeah. around in the background. 
and three Tiger tanks, which look like Tiger tanks. We know they're not, but they are, you know, the, 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 um, the designers have made far more effort with that film than with any other previous war movie, certainly of that whole decade. And that's what rings true right through to, to you know, Saving Private Ryan today we take that accuracy for granted but 1970 that was a really really unusual thing to do and that's why the film just sort of does it for me i think mm. i think that's why it stands up today as well because now we're used to sort of a lot more we're, we're used to really high production values now you know and, and the small down to the smallest bit of webbing is scrutinized um but now you look back at kelly's heroes the only thing i could pick it up on is men having thompsons but wearing m1 garand rifle belts but that's such that's a very small thing yeah, you know, and I can let it go because everything else is is right. Did Matt, you found out why there's Shermans and things like that in Croatia anyway? There's a there's a yeah, real good yeah. Reason well, for it. uh, um, it's partially to do with Stalin and Tito's rift in the late forties, early fifties, and the, the the U.S. Marshall Plan kicked in, and uh, a, a large number of uh, Shermans and other U.S. equipment were were uh, gifted to to Tito and the Yugoslavian mm. uh, military. Uh, so that's why we end up with, I think they are M4A3E4s. That's right. It's exactly what they are. Mm. Tito's in the middle. The West are trying to um, uh, entice them over to, to their side. And so there, there's a lot of surplus uh, Shermans of that model. Um, and America gives a lot or sells very cheaply a lot um, to Yugoslavia, who's, who's in the market for armor. Um, and so... Uh, this is what this is sort of late forties, and twenty years later, there they are in the the standard infantry uh, in the uh, in the Yugoslav National Army uh, armory, uh, and they're already obsolete. Uh, and and so you know they're a gift to filmmakers. Yeah, um, and that that's why the film comes to be filmed in uh, Croatia, because you've got this wealth of of armor that's available um, for a cut price. I mean that scene um, with the with the column is is a phenomenal scene, you know, where you have like three or four um, Shermans. You've got uh, half tracks. You have uh... yeah, M8 Greyhounds. Uh, there's Ooh. the GMCs, uh, Willis Jeeps. I think there's a I don't know. I think it might be Yaks. I think there's a couple of over. there's a couple of yeah yeah there's a couple of uh, Dodge weapon carriers and, yeah. and ambulances and. All kinds of really interesting stuff that you just wouldn't see on it's that It's like kind a James Guide, isn't it? It's like re it's yeah. like opening up a James Guide and like, oh look, you know, there's a big list of American stuff, and it's there. But it's really nice to see that you know back then there's no CGI. You can't really fake it very well. So it's it's just really nice to see all that American kit in one place. I mean, what what, what you've got if you're you're trying to do a a movie on a budget, and every movie has a budget. Um, is you you find somewhere where you can use the local army, uh, and that's what Battle of the Bulge had done sort of five years earlier, uh, and they borrowed a division of the Spanish army. But you you buy its kit uh, or you rent its kit, uh, and of course they got much later models that that just don't work. Um, yeah, in terms of historical accuracy. Um, whereas you, you, the genius was going to Yugoslavia because it not only looked right, it, it looked you know run down and and how France had done. Um, in the Second World yeah, War, yeah, of course. Um, but all the vehicles, all the kit, just hadn't really moved on, uh, and you you got this complete range of American stuff, but in quantity. Mm. Uh, and normally, you get one you know one tank driving into the into the scene, whereas, uh, as you said, you, you you can have a whole column of Shermans, 
and you know that bridging unit, uh, oh, you know the, all yeah. the scenes with yeah. the, the, the bridges. Where's where's all that? It all looks absolutely realistic because you know the the, the, the Yugoslav army, you know, essentially put aside a division of men for as long as it took uh, to film, uh, and they could have access to absolutely everything they wanted, and it was all 1940s vintage. I mean, what's not to like? I mean, that's a win-win all over. No other movie company really had gone to Yugoslavia before. Um, which luckily had just been undergoing a sort of renaissance of its own with its own film industry. So they were very keen to learn from the Americans. Yeah, and, and a lot of films follow Kelly's here, as like I mentioned, um, Force 10 from Navarone, and I think a number of other were filmed there. Um, and uh, I, I think uh, you mentioned earlier that the mocked up tigers, which are uh, T3485s with a really yeah. detailed, very impressive sort of like shell skin mm. over them um over the over the chassis which to to my my young guy when i first watched it i just assumed they really were tigers like you unless you're a spotter or you've made your airfix models of uh, of t34 tanks and you realize the tank track uh is wrong but you know at every yes. glance um even a close look um they, they they take all the boxes and the um uh, the producers there were really lucky because the, the Yugoslavs had just produced their biggest budget partisan movie called The Battle of uh, Novetta. That's it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it had they'd mocked up several T-3485s as tigers for that. Um, and they destroyed a lot of them, but they got three left over. So the, work, the hard work of getting uh, a... a, a Russian tank to look like a German one had already been done, um, had already been seen uh, in uh, in Yugoslav cinemas, had, had got the tick of approval. Those had gone across the Atlantic already. Um, uh, and so what you were doing was you weren't only renting the Yugoslav army, but you were also renting some of the Yugoslavs, you know, really young nascent Yugoslav cinema industries props, which included those three tigers. I mean, absolutely brilliant. Yeah. Um, and, you know, for a lot of purists, those really make the film because they stand out for, I mean, it's not for another 20, 30 years, people are making any effort to get accurate German armour yeah. uh, in, 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 any, uh, in any film. And so that's another reason why the, the movie stands out. Yeah, and they're the villain, aren't they? For me, they're the, they're the movie's only real villain. I mean, I mean that's, that's the point. I mean, so much of Kelly's Heroes rests on the kit, not just the people. Uh, and, you know, none of the Germans, as we said, have got any names. And mm. there's only one part that sort of leaps out at you. So it's the kit that makes it. And that, that's why the kit's got to mm. be so good. But on the American side, too, um, you know, it carries you along. Uh, and, you know, occasionally they, they fudge it where the kit's deemed to be peripheral, like the plane that dives down, which is, you know, playing a role of, a, I don't know, a P-47 or something. Yeah. Uh, and it's actually a sort of twin Yugoslav trainer with a yeah, rough yeah, paint job put yeah. over it. So occasionally they give up on the authenticity, like the crowd scene right at the end where <laughs> the 1960s garb. But it sort of doesn't matter because where it really, where where, where the uh, the plot focuses on what you can see, they, they, they make the effort and get it right every time. I think, I think those scenes add a little bit of charm too. Yeah. You know the the crowd at the end dancing with baguettes and such. <laughs> yeah. In case you forgot, it was the film was set in France. Those yeah. baguettes really bring you back to it, don't they? <laughs> they do. <laughs> so I think uh, I think all this kit chat really leads us nicely into the alley tally this week. So yeah, let's do the alley tally. 
Each week, what we try and do, Peter, is we try and pick a particular piece of kit or uh, equipment from the film that is particularly cool and, uh, you know, really stands out. So do you do you have a, a, a piece of kit from the film that you that stands out for you? I was sort of thinking about this. We, we, we've talked a lot about the Tigers. Um, <clears throat> I think um, there are two things that really leap out of me. Um, uh, one one is the set which is is Vizinada, which is the village um where the battle was fought which is looks so french but is actually 10 miles away from where i'm talking to you now i'm in croatia for the winter uh, and the little town of Vizinada, uh, which was almost deserted at the time and is, is not much more populated than <laughs> that now and is it just hasn't moved on um it is is a dead ringer and it works really really well um so many films fall down because of authenticity and there you have got something that looks like a really run down but very old french village from um, 1944 uh, yeah. and folks you can come here to croatia today once the, you know we're in a covid free world uh, and you can visit the place and you would recognize it absolutely sort of straight away the other sort of aspect really is the kit that they're wearing uh, we've talked a little bit about it, but but generally, you know, it, it it's so convincing. Um, I was in the former Yugoslavia in the 1990s as a soldier, and I was here for nine months as part of the um, I4 and S4 peacekeeping efforts. Uh, when you know it was all serious, there were mines in the ground, and and you didn't know whether people were going to be shooting at you, although peace was meant to have broken out. But you saw the former soldiers, um, and we were doing our peacekeeping bit and it was all a bit sort of fraught um, and you were working long hours in a sort of military environment um, and you you got a sense really of what war-torn Europe was was like at the end of the Second World War uh, and how France might have been in 1944 and, and, and so the plot was really convincing but the, the soldiers t-shirts stained grubby unshaven I mean they really looked the part uh, and so many war movies, everyone is sort of fresh-faced uh, and they, they've had a good scrub and everything is neat and pressed. Not a bit of it. I mean, they really do look grubby. And mm. Oddball, for all his 1970s hippie uh, eccentricities, <laughs> is not far removed from how a grubby tank commander might have seemed not having washed or shaved in the field for sort of three or four weeks. To me, that that really convinces uh, mm. It's the way the characters are dressed, the, the, not just their uniforms and the kit, but the, the, the way um, they behave and, and, and uh, carry themselves uh, and the look. Uh, and then the set, which just really just sort of sells itself. That, I think, gives it a gives Kelly's Heroes a unique quality because most other places, the set is just the background. Um, whereas with the film, this is, you know, you're, you're there all the time. Now, when you watch... Kelly's heroes very closely. What you realise they're doing is driving round and round Vizinada. So the opening scene where the yes. mortars come down yeah. uh, and they're driving yeah. away with the captured German colonel, that's Vizinada too. Uh, and you can start to see that the church is actually the same church. But it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter because that, that's just for the sort of nitpicking detailed purists. Uh, and the whole thing just sort of carries itself along. I hadn't noticed it before. I hadn't, it hadn't occurred to me. And then I, Robbie mentioned that the church looked the same and i was like of course the, the, yeah. literally it's the same town that you see at the beginning but just but a different angle. completely different angle and light and it's yeah it's just 
And I have to say that that's that's what sells it, because if you go to Visinada today, that church is still there. Nothing has changed. Nothing mm-hmm. has moved on at all. Um, and, you know, the town has Roman origins. You can see some Roman gravestones there. Um, it, it's been under sort of Venetian occupation at various times in its history. So it's been knocking around for nearly 2000 years. And the only thing the locals will tell you of note that's ever happened there was Kelly's Heroes in, in, <laughs> filmed in, in 1960. Fantastic. And, and you know that, that's that's the one thing. This mm. tiny little settlement. I doubt. I doubt there's more than a, you know two or three hundred people who live there. Mm. That's the one thing it sells itself on, and and it just hasn't moved on. Some of the buildings have have been upgraded. One one or two have been pulled down. I still haven't worked out where the general's house is because I've got my eye on. I'd love to buy that and do that up. <laughs> oh yeah, it's a beautiful house. Yeah, that'd be fantastic. <laughs> so Matt, what's your pick this week for the Alley Tally? My pick uh, is actually the M8 grenade launcher on uh, one of the guys' M1 uh, carbine. Yeah. Which you very rarely see. Uh, it's a bit of a niche pick this week, I'll be honest. But you very rarely see like an M8 uh, grenade launcher, rifle grenade launcher on it in a, in a war movie, especially um, one of that period. And it, it ties in again to what Peter was saying about, you know, the, the kit being pretty authentic and, you know, very very good and i i just think that scene where they're the the heist the operation in the village has begun and they're clearing out the the german garrison and they put the the guy stood uh, with his back to the wall just just simply waiting the the firing opens up he just turns puts a rifle grenade straight through the the window into the house opposite and it's just this tiny little scene but it it didn't have to be in the film mm. and the fact that they included it in the film and they included this unusual bit of kit it's just i think that's that to me is just nice. my my favorite pick out of all that plethora of really cool stuff that's in there he's got it attached to his his carbine all all the way through as well yeah all the way through as as they would have done they you know they mm. uh, it came in a pouch and they you know they could have left it on yeah. take it off put it on it's you know um but yeah i just think it's a really nice little inclusion of a piece of kit that's really small insignificant didn't have to be in there mm. but someone thought that's cool we'll put that in and they did. Someone might not even know what that was. So the armor mm. might not have known what it was. I'll oh, just stick it on the end of your gun. It looks cool. But actually, no, it serves a purpose and it has effect near the end of the movie where they do. It does, and it's cause... done with a flourish, but it's so short. It's just done with a flourish. And it's a soldierly flourish, you know, because it's he does it in a, in a way that's, you know, there's no um, outlandish sort of like uh, big, big sort of like statement made through it. There's mm. no like massive explosion or anything. It's just just something extra within that whole sort of like final sort of battle where you know Fire there's fight, a satchel yeah. charge in a house that didn't need to be included in the film but it's it's an it's a brilliant shot you yeah, know it's nice so that that's my pick what, what about you um what's your pick for the alutai uh so uh i was difficult well difficult in a way because obviously it's, it's kind of standard fare throughout the sort of the gi difficult, fare. But easy yeah but i went for the sheer amount of thompsons on display for one uh, you've got m1 thompsons and m1a1 thompsons yeah um, they're they're correct for the for the for the year that the movie's set in, but it it just seems like everyone is armed with one. There's no M1 Garands. There's there's no. one M1 carbine, but I've got a little bit of head head cannon theory for why this is. So Kelly's unit's going deep behind enemy lines, so they've got their tanks and they've got their half tracks, but then the half tracks are shot up and they can't use them. So they take their thirty cals with them. They seem to be carrying about six or seven grenades each. I think it's because they know they're behind enemy lines. So when they get into a firefight, they've got to put down as much firepower as they can to to cause maximum casualties and then get the hell out of there. 
So I think that's why everyone has got an automatic weapon for just sheer firepower. And then that leads into the excellent um, inclusion of that Polish BAR, which is one that looks like one of the most heftiest squad weapons I've ever seen in a movie. You know, it looks like an absolute beast. Well, that was the point I was going to come on to, because you don't see BARs in many movies. Um, if you've got a, a sort of squad weapon, it, it tends to morph into a 30 cal uh, brown mm. machine gun. Um, and BARs are sort of relatively rare and they don't talk about them. Um, and yet, you know, this, the, you know, that particular weapon uh, has a big role. Uh, and, you know, so that's something else that's unique and brought to this. The other thing is, you know, the German weapons are right. They're not masquerading as, uh, they're not American yeah. weapons masquerading as German weapons. You know, the the machine gun in the, the Tiger is quite clearly an MG42, and those are yeah. pretty rare beasts. Although it is popping through the vision slit, not the uh, the ball yeah, mount yeah. for it. <laughs> that was a bit, a bit of a stickler for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, we know why the vision slit was done, so you could you know well, exactly. worry in German trying to work out what was uh, what was going on and coming yeah. down the street. I mean, that's the other thing. You you've got the juxtaposition of absolute accuracy with with you know then the vision slit thing comes in, um, so you can see the ger puzzled Germans looking at the three Americans walking down the narrow street, mm -hmm. uh, and then you get you know we've we've gone into fantasy land because all of a sudden we've gone to a scene from the good, the bad, and the ugly as they stride oh. down with spurs jingling, but they're not it's even iconic. wearing spurs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's why we can suspend our scepticism every now and again with you know, people wearing sixes egg uh, clothing or whatever. Because the the movie pokes fun at itself, mm. and you mm. and, and it's it's not even subtle, and it carries you along because you know there's lots of good humour there, uh, and once you realise that's what's happening, you 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 forgive it when it does get things wrong, and I think that's the that, that's the point. It's a brilliant scene. I, I, just a quick mention there for uh, Lalo Schifrin's brilliant score. Oh think, yeah, which yeah. is great throughout the movie, and in that particular scene, it's it's such a great sort of like. Homage pastiche to exactly. It's such a great pastiche and like um, nod to Ennio uh, Morricone's uh, Spaghetti Western scores yeah. and and that track in the in the soundtrack is called Quick Draw Kelly. That's what it's called. Oh, is it? Oh, great! Is it? I didn't know that. No, I didn't either. That's marvelous. <laughs> and it, it's it's straight out of a Spaghetti Western, isn't it? You know, it's it's so good. It's so yeah. Good. It's it's it's. It's, and of it's course, perfect. we look back on them, whereas the spaghetti western was the sort of current genre mm. at the time. Yeah. So you know, it's incredibly um, of its time or, or of its moment, mm. um, and, and all of that has lost incredibly well. I mean, it's, it's impossible to believe that that movie came out fifty years ago, yeah. and yet it did. And yet we can understand all the reference points, not just mm. from a historical point of view, but you know, all those, all all those um, little sort of uh, nuances, the music, the westerns—they're still current, and we, we mm. get we absolutely get them. They're just as popular now as they were then, and that bizarrely it, it means it hasn't really dated. No, I don't think it has either. I think from a from a moviegoer point of view, for me, I think looking at it now, it because it's a simple A to B plot. And there's no, there's no like uh, romance scenes. There's, there's no ulterior sort of, oh God, the big evil villain sort of scenes. It's a very simple, right. We want to go and steal this gold. So let's compile everybody and go and steal this gold. Um, you, you know what's happening. You know why they, there's a means to every scene, you know, uh, oddball going to get the bridge. They need a bridge to get the tanks across. You know, anything they do is to get to the end goal. 
So I think that's why, for me at least, it holds up today because you can put it on. You don't even have to know anything about the Second World War, but you can understand why these men are doing what they're doing. I think that's why it holds up, for me at least. I mean, there's one, there's one thing in the movie that, that slows it down, uh, and that's the minefield scene. Um, and, and that's the, the one flaw I would sort of point out in it, really, because I was watching it again, trying to look at it objectively, and, then, and then all of a sudden the minefield scene um, sort of stood out to me. And this is where they're walking through a field and, and um, uh, one of them treads on a mine and two more are caught when the Germans suddenly arrive. Mm. Uh, and there are several things about that. The first was the original script was written without any deaths. Uh, and that's what attracted everyone, particularly Clint Eastwood, but everybody else. Um, and there was some love interest to begin with. Um, and MGM, for some reason, wanted death. Um, uh, uh, they they didn't want it to just be an anti-war movie subtly. They wanted it to be you know, quite viscerally anti-war. So the death scene came in, in other words, the, the, the minds. Everybody objected. Brian Hutton, the, even the director, didn't like it, but MGM sort of forced it through. So the screen, uh, the, uh, the that bit of the screenplay had to be rewritten. But what is a minefield doing 50 miles behind enemy lines yeah. in the middle of nowhere yeah. when you stop and think about it? I mean, that's just bonkers. And just um, one side and of the road. military terminology, you, you put a minefield to protect something and you cover it. You don't just leave it there mm. because the idea is people get stranded in minefields and that's where you, you, you then fire on them. So the minefield is an obstacle. It slows people down. And while they're busy picking their way out of it or lifting the mines, you then hit them. So minefields are always covered with indirect fire artillery or more usually yeah. direct fire with mm. machine guns. So you don't have a minefield in the middle of nowhere, 50 miles behind the lines, with a German camp a few miles down the road. So if they hear a bang, how do they hear a bang? We don't know about that because mines don't usually make that much of a noise. Um, so you don't cover your minefield with a German training camp about five miles down the road or jump into your trucks and go and see what's going on. So that bit just, A, went against the spirit of the original script. But me, you know, from, from my point of view as a military purist, that just rings sort of alarm bells that bit isn't right whereas everything else mm -hmm. just s smoothly carries on all the way through i think what would have been good in its place there would have been perhaps um they accidentally run into a german patrol that would yeah. have worked just as well if they wanted to, to to have a couple of character deaths then they could have easily done it with they they're crossing that road and all of a sudden that those german armor um half tracks appear they could have stumbled onto the column easier. We have to wish whether uh, for someone to find those missing 20 minutes from a cutting room floor, because I've never seen a sort of mm. director's cut or even heard any evidence of it. There was mm. a scene where they capture, uh, they find a British pilot who's been That's hidden it. behind the lines, who's come down and needs rescuing. Um, there's a lot of development of... Um, uh, the sort of girls that the oddball and his tank crewmen are playing around with right at the beginning. Um, there's a scene where Kelly and his troops encounter a lot of um, French girls bathing semi-naked in uh, one of the town fountains. Um, so, uh, oh, and the general, um, when we first encounter him, Carol O'Connor, um, is in a bed full of girls. So there's, there's you know, some of that is is uh, is, is cut out. Uh, and perhaps that was sort of over frivolous, um, but there's there's more to Kelly's heroes than meets the eye, uh, and including the name, it wasn't even going to be Kelly's heroes. 
Mm. First title was The Warriors. Then they changed it to Kelly's Warriors. And then finally it came out as Kelly's Heroes, which I think is actually the right choice that works. Yes, yeah, I'd agree does. with that. But as you were saying, that, um, there, there is supposedly a scene, a fairly lengthy one, of Joe and Kelly discussing Kelly's uh, demotion, which is That's hinted right, to. That's right, absolutely. And, you know, it gives it a bit more of a the anti-war twist, which is weird that the studio decided to cut that part because you would think that that would have added to the, the narrative that they were trying to get across with the, the anti-war sentiment. Maybe they're worried about pushback from... I don't assume there's any pro-Vietnam groups knocking about in 1917 America, but maybe they're worried about like the, the fallout of that. it was too on the nose. Possibly, yeah. Mm. You know, worried about the yeah. censor. Maybe. maybe they thought, well, if we don't cut the scene, they'll ask for it to be, someone will ask for it to be cut anyway from higher up. So you never know, do you really, with these things? It's sort of, it could be anything while they cut that scene. It, it may be, it may have just jarred completely with the tone of the rest mm. of the film. Uh, it's too serious. Yeah, no, I think that. I think if you could cut the minefield scene out and perhaps reinsert that scene, you might have a, yeah. you know, quite possibly a more interesting film. Because they can run into that patrol anyway. Because they're gonna run into that patrol. The the, the armored. Yes, uh, you could column. quite easy. You could quite easily. This is we're getting into sort of like a, a <laughs> fighting on film, sort of like recut of the movie here. Right. But you could quite easily cut just as they're climbing out of the minefield oh, and yeah. have the the, the the column sort of like appear. But yeah. Anyway, so we're we're, di- we're digressing there onto a yeah. onto a fan cut of the movie. Well, of course, uh, and as we do come out of the minefield, there's then that scene when they are cruising back behind the lines, all aboard the one uh, remaining tank, and that's how they yes. get eventually to, to Claremore. Um, uh, and there is a scene where the tank goes round the corner, uh, and there are three nuns crossing the road, um, and that is the cameo appearance, John Landis, uh, because he is there as one of one of the nuns. Yeah, he's one of the nuns. It's so it's so weird, isn't it? And I I talk about it earlier. I I, I want to say I think for me now, and if I watch Blues Brothers, I'm going to assume Bob's Country Bunker was bought with Nazi gold. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm going to. Well, assume. I love it. There's the key, you know, instant connectivity from 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 one to another. I'd love to go down in history, you know, as as credited as third nun in Kelly's Heroes. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Probably John Landis's proudest. Yeah, it must be <laughs> screen credit. Not maybe not maybe not directorial credit, but probably his probably his favourite uh, screen credit. It's got to be. It's got to be. I think this leads perfectly into. We talked about some bits we didn't like, um, so maybe we should talk now about our favourite our favourite parts of the film. I think I think my favourite um, part, perhaps it's a, a little bit of a, a, an obtuse pick, would be. I think it's the part where the three shermans are about to emerge out of the tunnel into the railway yard about to go onto the bridge and oddball is sat on his tank and he's talking to his other two tank commanders and he's saying we'll go out in, a, in an echelon i'll flank forward you go you, you flank right i'll you flank left and he, he's basically he's being a tank commander and a, and a um a troop commander and he's he's basically giving giving orders to to the three shermans and it's at that moment that for me i think wait he's oddball he's he's, he's a screwball he's a hippie uh, but he's still a, you know, he's a professional. He knows what he's doing, and he knows how he's going to fight through this this stockyard up onto the bridge. Which, and I think that's a really cool bit. And of course, that that scene where the tanks emerge out of the the tunnel and yeah. just lay waste to that stockyard, the the railway yard, is just it's just a, a really brilliant scene. You have, you know, um, there's so much kit on display there. You have the three the three Shermans. Um, they're playing 
music through their loudspeakers. <laughs> uh, you've got you've got oddball. It's, a, it's almost a popular is, is orders through and um, and the, there's it's there's a lot of like a star armor. You've got a steam engine there. You've got a little German exactly quadruple twenty yeah. millimeter anti aircraft gun. Yeah, there are fourteen different stuntmen in that scene. I mean that 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 is that's where they've gone to sort of you know they, they they've they've got their where eagles dare shopping list out of, you know, <laughs> how many pieces of, of kit can we cram into one pan uh, how how often can we destroy them uh, how much destruction can we get for our money and how many people can we have sort of being blown up and there's no blood there's absolutely no blood you see people falling down but you never focus on the dead at yeah. all um, and the implication is they've been killed, but it, you know you never see it. I don't think I've ever seen so many close-up coaxial machine gun shots in my life. You know, <laughs> the, no, the... <laughs> that's another good point. Like the 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 close-ups of the crew inside the tank is something again that you don't really true. see. Yeah. You've never seen that in anything else. No, yeah. I mean I think that the only other film I've I've seen that there's a couple of really bad ones in Battle of the Bulge, mm. but there's you know the. I think that you know the the shot of Moriarty on that Browning, the Hull Browning, yeah, um, and some of the others He's inside his the teeth, tank, isn't he? Giving it some, yeah, yeah. Like I think they're some of the best, like in internal shots of of a tank crew in action. That shot until echoes, you sort of like get to Fury. Yeah, it really echoes Fury, doesn't it? That interior shot there. I mean, it's only such a maybe like a five second clip map. Yeah, it's it's a very it, very short. You shot. could side beside them, especially when the I think it's the young lad they're replacing mm. finally opens up and, and and guns down that German running away. I think, but that those shots are very very similar. And I wonder if there may, might have been a little bit of There's homage from one homage, to another. Quite yeah. clearly, you see that. Um, and you get this a bit later on in Kelly's Heroes. There's a wonderful shot of the Tiger tank blowing something up and the the camera again goes inside the the, uh, the tank because you yes. see all the debris being thrown at the camera lens mm. and that's you know that's very unusual because you you want to blink and duck uh, as yeah. all the sort of stuff comes towards you um and again they, they've had some great fun with sort of camera angles there i think thought thought long and hard well, about the accuracy Gabriel uh, Figueroa, the, the cinematographer for the, for the movie, um, actually uh, was nominated for an Oscar a couple of years beforehand. So you can tell that 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 cinematography, that the you know the camera work, yeah. the shot makeup is all really you know. It, there's some really beautiful shots. There's that shot of um, Maitland as he walks into the bank, and it's sort of like a, a pivoting overhead shot of him looking. Uh, through the building and it's just a shot of the empty floor where all, all the gold has disappeared from mm. or that shot of the 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 germans opening up with an mp40 uh, from behind the tanks um in the the, the rail yard and there's, yeah, a, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a beautifully framed shot of um where the bar has been set up looking through when the, the shuttered door window oh, well, when, yeah yeah, the yeah. yeah. it's beautiful it just, just really beautifully composed shots and it you know and i think that that's pro for me is probably what adds to the sort of the timelessness of the film in that it's just really beautifully shot so robbie what about yours well for me i've got i'm going to be cheeky i'm going to pick two favorite bits um so my first is the the for me the first proper gun i say proper but the first proper gun battle of the movie where they take on the the german uh trucks and the Kubelwagen when they've just come out of the minefield and the mm. reason I like it is because it's 
it's really up close and personal, like CQB action. You know, you get some real nice shots of, of Kelly giving it some of this Thompson and things like that. But it's the fact that I think it's about 10 men. I think I counted them as 26 fully armed Germans there with MG42 support. And they absolutely lay waste to them. <laughs> and I think it's it's more the shots of, for me at least, Don Rickles with a 30 caliber machine gun. In my head, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, that's Mr. Potato Head giving it some with a 30 cal. And it... <laughs> And for me, I'm like, wow, it's great. But it's when I was little, that scene, I always loved it. So I thought, oh, come on, they're gonna, they're gonna shoot that column up now. It was, it's just such a, it's, it's a, f- not fun because obviously, you know, shooting another man isn't fun. But I mean, sort of in a sort of action movie way, gun ho over the top action. It, it's really well done, um, and I always love it. Yeah, those Thompsons are doing what those Thompsons were designed for. Yeah, yeah, up yeah. close and personal, up sweeping close and personal. shots. It's brilliant. Mm. Um, and then my second is it's just oddball and Moriarty's relationship. I just love it, and I've, I've got an extract. That's a foil. Yeah. Oh, I've got an extract from the from one of their conversation, and it's when Kelly is sort of saying, "Right, we're going to go into the town, and we're going to take on the tigers, and then we're going to get the gold." And uh, Moriarty just explodes, and he says, "When we was in the Bocage country, we were assaulted by them tigers. You know what I mean? Assaulted." And uh, oddball goes. Why don't you knock it off with them negative waves? Why don't you dig how beautiful it is out here? Why don't you say something righteous and hopeful for a change? And Moriarty just goes, crap, and he walks off. And I I adore that. I love the sort It's such an insight into their relationship because you find out, you know, from one word, I'm like, oh, God, they've been fighting since Normandy, you know. They must really love and hate each other. And when he introduces him, he's like, oh, yeah, this is Moriarty. You can do anything with a, with a Sherman engine. He goes, oh, whatever you said, babe. You know, I'm just like, what's their relationship? You know, <laughs> they sort of love each other. They hate each other. It's just brilliant. That feeds into one of the best lines of, uh, of the whole thing, because uh, next, or almost next, uh, Oddball is sort of uh, being nudged to, uh, to play his part and be a hero. And he turns around. To a, to, to a New Yorker like you, a hero is some kind of weird sandwich. <laughs> it is just such a surreal phrase. Uh, and that's why the film just never dates, because these stabs in it, I mean, Troy Kennedy Martin must have been rolling in the eyes, sitting down, coming up with a brilliant line like that. And, and so that good. is, I mean, it, it, it works on both sides of the Atlantic. But it's timeless. I mean, you could have it deployed is. that line a hundred years ago, and people would know it. You can deploy. You'll be able to say that line in a hundred years' time, and it will still mean what it meant in 1969, 1970. That's why I love it. That scene is brilliant. Well, because they're talking tactics, they're doing what yeah. military folk do, I, and you know, Clint Eastwood Kelly is coming out with, okay, you know, this is how you work. This is, you know, this is the floor of a tiger tank. It's 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 hemmed in. So how are we going to get round it? Um, so it's not all fa- again. It's not all fantasy. It, it's yeah. anchored down. It's really clever screenwriting, um, which would have appealed to an audience, a lot of whom were undergoing an America conscription to fight in Vietnam, or the slightly older ones who'd fought in, in World War II. And, and half, half the cast are too young to have fought in World War II, but some of them had. Um, mm. And therefore their audiences had. So, you know, this has got to be actually not just have the right kit, but, but actually talk the talk and be vaguely realistic. Yeah. And, and again, it ticks all the boxes. And that particular scene where they're overlooking 
the town Claremont. They're about to go in and they're working out how to do it. All tactics bits just hit the nail on the head for me, just as we said with the the, the three tanks. Let's go out in arrowhead formation, and they yeah. all know what they're doing. Yeah, uh, and yeah. I love it for that. The soldiers that have been all the way through France, you know, so they're going to be experienced. They're going to know the best way to sort of tackle these things. So it's nice that the film and that the writing gives them those legs because they hint they've been in the Bocage. They hint that they've fought through France. You know, Kelly's a demoted lieutenant. You know, it's, just, it's all these small little things mm. that sort of like rounds out the characters and give them gives them that little bit of backstory and, and you know, depth. I think that's... It's great, but yes, Peter. Please, what's what's your what's your favourite? Well, I'm I, just picking up your last point. Um, so, soldiers, when they work together for, for uh, long periods of time, particularly in combat, um, should be able to sort of spark off each other and almost understand what their colleagues want them to do without having to explain. Mm. And of course, in in Hollywood terms, that doesn't work. Um, and that's where you're odds with reality. So what's the device you, you bring? You bring in two groups who are on the same side, but they, they haven't worked together before. Mm. Um, and so Oddball and his tank crew, they all know what they're, that they're about, but Kelly doesn't because he's not been, his group haven't been part of them. So that's how you get the cinematic sort of device of each explaining what the other's doing because they're strangers to each other. So that particularly works well for me. I mean, I'm going to cheat and just sort of say, well, you know, what, what carries it along for me um, is oddball. Uh, and I put a poll up before uh, this podcast. Uh, 640 people responded to wow. my uh, poll, which was who's your favourite character Amazing. in, in Kelly's Heroes? And I, I put up... Uh, Big Joe, I put up Oddball, I put up Kelly, uh, and I forget who the other one was. And, and the overwhelming vote was uh, by 65% was Oddball. So Oof. in people's minds, it, it, it's he who carries, Donald Sutherland who sort of carries the film. And, and it's what makes him, it, it's his one-liners. We've just had a look at one of them. Um, but it's interesting, Oddball doesn't appear until 31 minutes into the film. Yeah. And what's what his an first line? Can you remember? Oh, um, gosh. He's out of shot. Yeah. And uh, it's something like... Uh, a, is tiger, it... a Sherman can give you a very nice edge. Yeah. Is that, is that it? it? No. Oh. oh. So we're gonna you miss. could probably use some armour. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's it. Immediately preceding that, yeah. Yeah. And it's that he's out of shot. It's yeah. so unexpected. It's so left field. And that sets the movie. And it's not predictable. Any of the, no. none of the characters are really predictable. You think you know where it's going. And oddball is the oddball because he 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 bowls at you left field all the time. And whether it's his phraseology or his behaviour, um, and, and that's the whole script. It takes you all over the place. And none of none of the destination, none of the uh, sort of adventures are really expected. And I think that's. That's mm. the other thing. It play, it gives you a genre that you, you've never encountered before because it's pure surrealism. No accident that, that you know this is coming out in, in at the height of the sort of surrealist era in mm. uh, mm. the 1960s, 1970s. It's, it's very avant-garde in that respect. So that's Kel, that's uh, Oddball um, just after half an hour. Um, and then, of course, at 53 minutes, we've got, don't hit me for those negatives, wait so early in the morning. Um, <laughs> and... You know, these have given rise to 
endless, endless imitations. This, whenever I put up on Twitter, which I seem to do almost every day, the fact that, that I, I love oddball, there's always a negative waves comment. Uh, or, you know, are you sitting here, you know, eating, drinking wine and eating cheese? Oh, that's such a good quote. I was just thinking of that one. Well, you know, as soon as we put up that we were going to do... Um... Kelly's heroes. We got a flurry of quotes of just people replying to the tweet, just quotes, and and one of them was the the New York sandwich line, and it brought it back to me. You know, instantly I thought, there's so many good lines in this movie, and and woof woof. Yes, it's just it's so it it's bizarre. I and love it's it. Compl- completely sort of like out of out of the time. It no one in 1940 probably would have you know had the mannerisms and that kind of speech that oddball does Why but it's, don't you it's dig worse. what a beautiful day it is i mean exactly. that is very that's just not 1940s no, language at all <laughs> You wouldn't have but that it doesn't matter. That's the whole point, and, mm. and and this is why you know this is why it it, it does. So the other thing, I, I I mean, the script sums up moods in the wrong language. Um, there's there's a lovely scene where one of the where the tank is the Sherman tank is broken down in Claremont. Uh, and Oddball is just sort of sitting around, and Kelly says, uh, old Big Joe says, you know, why aren't you fixing it? Hey, man, I just ride them. I don't know what makes them go. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> I ride them and I'll fix You them. talk yeah. to any cavalry officer around the world, and that sums up their view. <laughs> they sit on their tank, they command him, they have no idea what, you know, how, <laughs> how, how to get the greasy engine to, to, to work or anything else yeah. um, or, the, or that's the wannabe attitude of the cavalry um, and it just sort of it, it captures that mood uh, and I think for me what sells Kelly's here is so well coming having worn a uniform for a lot of my life is it's so popular with the military because it takes all those stereotypes it exaggerates them and yet with every character in Keller's Heroes, you've got a lot of soldiers, male and female, sitting around of a lot of armies all right across the world, and then nodding sagely. I know that character. I know that character. I know the sort of person who would say that. And again, I think that's why it appeals, because it, it's it's only one stage removed from reality. And that, that's why it works. It was actually, you know, it's, it's close to the bone, yeah. uh, and and yet it doesn't seem so because it's it's poking fun and it's it's so exaggerated and serious. But on a on another level, it's incredibly close, and that's that's the the, the genius of the the script and perhaps the mood of the time. I mean, we, we wax lyrical about Oddball and, and, and the gang, you know, eternal. He will always be the the Sherman tank commander, I think. Um, but, Far more professional than people think. Yeah, much, much more. Um, so any 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 final thoughts, chaps, on Kelly's Heroes? I mean, we, we could literally be here all night on it. but <laughs> um, Yeah, I think for me, I think uh, it, it, the reason it's so timeless and so enjoyable is a combination of a great script performed by a great cast shot beautifully i think and it's in a beautiful location as well um that 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 croatian village that peter's told us about is 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 really beautiful and it's it's the perfect sort of sort of echoing those mexican or uh western american towns in in cowboy films and spaghetti westerns has that that echo and it also has that echo of what a uh, French village in 1944 
might have looked like as well. So it, it has that perfect setting, brilliant cast, great writing, and it's beautifully shot. So that, they're my final thoughts on, on Kelly's Heroes. Peter? I think Kelly's Heroes delivers in a very military way it, with, with some of the characters. Um, so Kelly is a leader. He puts his life on the line. He's on mm. top of the tank when they go to Claremont. He's, he's kidnapping uh, German colonels behind the lines. I mean, he's the sort of guy you would want to follow over the top. Um, you've got Big Joe, who, who's the guy who worries about the people. He doesn't want them to go on the bank raid behind the lines because it's going to kill everybody. And eventually he's talked round. But he's he is the, the good agent. NCO. He's worried about the personnel. Um, mm. And you've got Crap Game. He's the supply guy. He's the guy who organizes all the logistics. You've got all the elements there that you need for any successful uh, caper, uh, whether it's a heist, uh, whether it's any kind of sort of business. You know those three elements, and you've got them um, extraordinarily well um enacted um in a sort of second world war context uh and i you know that to me and i'll go back to what i i said right to the beginning um the the best second world war movie of all time is is kelly's heroes because it in some ways it delivers something that's incredibly close to the bone uh, and yet it steps away. It's not based on actual historical truth in any way at all. But we've all agreed. It's it just on the edge of plausibility. And doesn't that make it a candidate for the best of all time? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, it's high praise coming from coming from uh, you, Peter. Um, but I think for me, I mean, I it's just the longevity of the movie. You know, the fact that we're still sitting here in, in 2021 and talking about a movie with such enthusiasm that would come out in 1970, you know, it predates me by like nearly, you know, 30 years. I was born in the early nineties. Um, but, you know, I went online and I was just looking at for some, some facts and things to, to pull up today, but the sheer amount of merchandise you can still buy for this film it, for me is incredible. You can buy a little scale miniature of the church tower um, that cowboys in, you, you can buy little figures of oddball and Kelly and, and things like that. I think that's mad. You know, not there aren't many movies from that era who still have consistent merchandise being made for them and, and not even official merchandise, just merchandise that fans have made because I love it so much. You know, me and Matt were sharing some alternative posters that we found. And I think I want that on my wall. You know, it looks so cool. You know, it just stood the test of time so well. And I think that's why for me, it's just, it's just a fantastic film. You know, um, I can't say any more on it really. It's just, it's just no, I, think, I think it was I think it was the perfect film for us to to come into the new year with with our really? very first episode yeah. and I I can't thank you for uh, coming on enough Peter um we're so pleased that you could join us to to, to talk about the film uh your enthusiasm for it on Twitter definitely came across and we thought we got we got to have Peter on to talk definitely. about this one yeah well, thank you very much for those positive waves and I'm <laughs> going to disappear off into the sunset now and drink some wine and eat some cheese. Uh, and hopefully you beautiful people will dig just how beautiful it is out in Croatia. And the moment uh, this horrible plague has left us, you two are going to come over here, find that tiny little place near Porich on the coast, little village called Vizinada, uh, and share some of those positive waves, um, uh, because you will see where the whole thing was filmed uh, and just how much fun they must have had on the set making it and this is where i put my professional reputation on the line having been a professional weather story for over 30 years 
uh, I still think it, it's the best contribution that Hollywood, Hollywood can make uh, about the Second World War because it, it's sufficiently divorced from reality to get me off the hook of any accusations. And yet it's sufficiently close for everybody to nod and say, God, that's not, that's, uh, that's pretty authentic. So there we go. There we are. Fantastic. And that sounds like a fighting on film road trip for the future. It, that would be incredible. Um, so as ever, everybody, thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, give us a like, a follow, a review on whatever you're listening on, whether that be Apple, Spotify, any of those apps. So uh, yes, is everyone signing off again? Uh, I'll say bye-bye. Thanks for listening, guys. Oh, and don't forget to follow us over on Twitter as well, at Fighting on Film. And I will say goodbye as well. Thank you very much. I hugely enjoyed it. Thank you very much for inviting me on, guys. That's brilliant. See you soon, everyone. Thanks, guys. Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.